Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning, good morning. I am Mike. I, don't, I wasn't even paying attention to the video. I'm a student pastor here. I don't know if it just told you that, but uh, Ryan is part of the riffraff that is also located over here in this side of the... Uh, of the building today, and I appreciate you uh, being graceful and letting them join us uh, this, this uh, morning. Um, a few weeks ago, one of our amazing leaders on a Sunday morning down in youth uh, was talking about grace. He was opening up a series on the topic of grace, and he said these words, all right? Mr. Mick Hernandez said these words, God delights in showing us grace. Pretty basic, right? Pretty, pretty basic, something that maybe we have heard on an ongoing basis in our Christian lives, coming to church, and we hear those things. And yet, for some reason, a few weeks ago, those two words, delight and grace, triggered me. They, they reminded me of the history that I have with those two words, delight, this pleasure, this, this enjoyment, this gladness that God has in showing us grace, which is his overwhelming goodness. And it reminded me of this history. We kind of have like this, you know, old girlfriend history from high school that I thought back to and thought of, wow, those two words more than any other words have probably helped me develop as a adult in my Christian faith. Here's what happened. Back when I was in college, I uh, had a pretty good idea that as a freshman going to college, I was probably going to be going into ministry. But whether I went into ministry or something else, I had decided that I was going to have this Marvel superhero-like faith. That, that I would be able to show God that he could trust me with anything. And at the end of my life, I would be considered uh, among some of the great church fathers that had ever existed. And so when I got to school, those of you that know me are laughing already, okay? But when I got to school, I, I actually kind of ratcheted up all of my disciplines, I guess you could call them. When my friends would be hanging out with each other, going out to, to lunch or dinner, I would find myself often out in the freshman parking lot just praying. When, you know, they were doing other things, I would be reading God's word and just kind of trying to focus on, God, what do you have for my life? What does this next stage look like? And I just started kind of cutting out other things to prove to God, to show him my focus is on you. So that meant that friends would kind of go away. Uh, anytime a girlfriend, I didn't, I didn't know if I could show God that I loved someone else other than him, and so girlfriends kind of went away out of my life, not knowing if I would ever be able to get married, and so at the end of my freshman year, I am caught because I still kind of feel empty and don't feel like I'm really getting anywhere in this pursuit, and so I decide to kind of up it even more, and so going into my sophomore year, I take all of those disciplines and kind of move them to a deeper level. And it was just a, it was an interesting time in my life. I would say, honestly, kind of like a dark time. And, and around the end of my sophomore year, I started asking myself this question. If I'm spending so much time with God, I'm praying, I'm reading, why do I feel so miserable? Why, why do I feel so empty and depressed and confused? 
when it should be the other way. And I don't know how this happened, but at the beginning of my junior year, I started reading a book called Galatians. And for those of you that have never opened up Galatians, Galatians is a book on grace. It's a book on delight. And I started coming in contact with these very deep but wrong convictions that I had in my life about proving to God that I was worth something. Earning love. Achieving grace. I I had fallen into the natural worldly way of seeing God exactly how we see the rest of the world. Because how we see the world, the natural way we have to live in this world is we, we have to achieve to get somewhere. Actually, I like it a way someone said it is achievement precedes acceptance. And I had taken that baggage to God and in his silence through those years. He finally brought me out of that and showed me, Mike, pursuing me is a great thing, but pursuing me for the sake of you earning something from me will destroy everything about you. And so when when Mick said those words a few weeks ago, it brought all of that back because Delight and grace can tell you a lot about your relationship with God, right? I'm sure this test doesn't just work for me. It works for all of us in here. What you delight in and how much grace you have in your life are a good indicator of where you are with God in any given moment. And not only back then in college, in these last few months, had I become a very conditional person myself I had taken it a step further and I had put that same condition on God. Yeah, people had to earn my love. People had to earn my acceptance. If you failed me, then you had to make it right. But I had taken that and and like John Mark Comer in his book, God has a name. He says, we often project us on God. We create him in our image. And it was happening again. I could see it. I could feel that same emptiness and that same confusion and that depression because I was taking me and my condition and and my logical, rational, all these man-made mantras that I had and ways of living that I had kind of made for myself about earning and proving, and I had put that on God. And we were kind of back in college again. And so these last few weeks have really helped me. They've really brought me back to reality on what the gospel says because like I said, it is so natural. It is so easy for us to prove that we have what it takes to earn the next promotion, to achieve good grades, the idea that failure isn't an option in our minds or that we have to control people's acceptance of us by our own behavior. It all came back to control for me. I was controlling everything around me and sadly, I was controlling my relationship with God. And the worst part about all of this is that in the midst of this, I'm sure that you have been there before. In the midst of this, you're realizing and coming up in contact with how oxymoronic this way of living the Christian life is. Right, It is completely opposed to the entire gospel. It it can't happen. 
And I fall into the category of the person that wants to control life. And if you say, this is the hoop you have to jump through, then I will hump through that. I, I will jump through that hoop. Sorry. I will, I will get to that standard that you have set. I will, I will elevate myself to that level. Some of you, though, you have kind of tried to beat the system because you realize, you know what, I can never get to that standard. You come at it from a different angle, and so you kind of try to destroy the system. You just try to take it out of your life. It doesn't exist anymore. I, I have no rules. Everything is subjective to whatever someone feels about something. And yet, if you were being honest with yourself, all of those little man-made rules, all of those little conditions start to sneak back into your life. Standards that you can't live up to in your loved ones, your friends, your family, they can't live up to either. And we find ourselves in that position. But like I said, for those of us that are in Christ, we've experienced something different through the gospel. Because the gospel has a much better way to handle with this rules and these, this pressure. The gospel proclaims that God has delighted in giving his grace as a gift, not a paycheck. Literally, grace can't be earned. It always must be given and received. And so often we treat it like a paycheck that we try to achieve. The gospel says that you are made alive and free in Christ regardless of your inadequacies. And the gospel says that no one has earned God's goodness, love, forgiveness, and acceptance. That he freely gives it and delights in giving it. Is glad to give it to you. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 says this. Instead, God shows things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who think they are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God of God. His will, his gladness and pleasure that he takes in giving us that grace and showing us that goodness exists in our foolishness and weakness, in that reality, so that none of us can come before God and say, hey, remember how I earned this? Remember what I did when you gave me that love, God? It all exists in foolishness, never in pride. It all exists even like Romans 5 says. It takes it a step further. No longer are we just foolish. No longer are we weak. It says that actually that you were made right with God. You were made right with him as enemies of God completely living the opposite life that God would want for you. Not neutral, not just neutral in, in my ability, God, so therefore you should prove something to, you should give me something. No, enemies, completely opposed. And it says that in that moment of showing you that grace through Christ, you were made as a friend declared righteous with 
a friend. Now, when I think of the light in my life, and when I think of the light in our suburban lifestyle that we, we live, the light for Mike and the light of God go two separate ways. Because God is delighting in showing us goodness and forgiveness and love and grace in the moment when we are completely opposed to him as enemies. And I delight in showing goodness to those who show it back to me. I delight in getting revenge to those who have deserved my revenge. And yet God is not that way at all. And yet we sometimes project that on him. Look at the entire Old Testament, New Testament. The entire Bible is full of people that had no qualifications at all, had done nothing to earn any type of saving grace. And yet God brought them to himself and used them to further his kingdom and his glory. I mean, even if we just look at Jesus' life, like, I mean, we don't even have time to go to all of the places in the Gospels. But Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, someone that most of us are extremely familiar with, if you look at the stories in the Gospel and you don't know how it ends, you would sit and go, you know, Jesus, I don't really feel like your discernment in picking this guy or this group of disciples was very good. Like, you may want to drop this guy out of your posse and start over again. Because literally, every time Peter is given responsibility, he fails. Every time that he tries to make a well-intentioned move, he loses. And over and over again, until the point when Peter betrays Christ in the time when he needs someone to stick by him the most, and God, through Christ, still shows Peter that grace and reinstates him and allows him to be one of the early church fathers that spreads the gospel. Go to Zacchaeus. A man who had betrayed his people. He had sold his soul and his his greed all for Rome. He had taken advantage of all of his fellow Jews by bringing taxes in and then exploiting even more for himself. And this man... Zacchaeus has nothing to offer. And as he sits in the tree, waiting for Jesus to walk by, Jesus looks up at him and he says, hey man, come on down here. I wanna hang out with you. Every single person in that crowd that knew that man would have been perfectly fine if Jesus told him how horrible he was. Every person would have been perfectly fine if Jesus attacked him, you know, just shamed him, said, get out of here. You're not worthy of my presence or the presence of all of these people that you have gone after and exploited. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to show you grace in this moment. I I want to intentionally be with you. And that fast, that grace changes Zacchaeus and he says, "I, I will pay back everything everything that I have stolen and give even more to those that I have stolen it from. The woman at the well that had gone from from man to man and and was known in in the community as just kind of being the the town floozy, right? She had just gone from, from man to man searching for acceptance and love and never found it. And everybody knows who she is. And Jesus takes time out of his day not to tell her how unbelievably wrong she was, but to breathe life into her. 
to offer forgiveness. And this woman goes from there, wanting to tell everybody in her community the change that he made in her. Just overwhelming grace over and over and over again. The last one is just the leper. The man that that had to lawfully be kicked out of his house. He had to be kicked out of his community. He is now an outcast to society. And Christ walks into this environment, gives grace, heals him, and restores everything about him, even though what he had deserved, whether he deserved that that disease or not, even though what he had deserved was for Christ to keep his distance, instead, Christ goes towards him in that moment. And his life is forever changed. Literally, we could stand up here for the next couple hours and look at instance after instance that God in the flesh is showing grace to everybody. We could just keep, keep going. Jesus' whole ministry was to those who had nothing to offer. And the only time that you will ever see Jesus get upset in the Gospels is to those that thought they had something to offer him that thought they had earned his righteousness. And how often in my suburban life and in my ministry do I kind of distance myself from those that I would term a little bit too messy for my qualifications? A little, little bit too far down the road, I want, you to, I want you to get your life back together a little bit more and then come find me and we'll talk. And over and over and over again, Christ goes into that environment where nothing was deserved and shows grace. I have to be honest, and in and, and past when I've spoken in youth, you've heard this before, is as I get around the topic of grace, this little kind of grumpy old man that I picture, uh, if you've seen the movie Up, where little grumpy guy ties a bunch of balloons to his house to escape, you know, his surroundings, and he's just kind of crotchety and crusty. And I, this little guy comes up in my head, all right? And I don't know if he does in yours as well, but when we talk about grace, I start getting uncomfortable with the topic of grace because I'm like, well, surely, God, we can't, get, we can't just all be grace like hippies floating around and free spirits, you know, all about love and everything. Like, what about law and rules and discipline? Like, it has to serve a purpose, right? We, we, can't, just, we can't just go that far in love, and what I love about Christianity is it answers that topic perfectly. Perfectly. J. Gresham Machen, in his book, Origin of Paul's Religion, actually points this out in its counterintuitive approach to the law. He says, when you have a high view of law, you will also have a high view of grace. But when you have a low view of law, you will have a low view of grace. Let's start on the low side. When you think that the law is just a bunch of rules that you have to follow, and you hope that you can earn and achieve and complete all of those rules, then you become a legalist. But when you see the law as Galatians 3, 19 through 26 kind of starts to talk about, that the law's goal was not to bring transformation to your life. The high view that we need to have of the law, the law's goal is to show you that you are in rebellion with God. 
It's, it's to show you that you have sinned against a righteous God. And you know what it's supposed to do? It's supposed to make you feel like you will never achieve perfection. You know why? Because you'll never achieve perfection. And the beauty of the gospel is that Christ, the Son of God, comes and achieves perfection, takes on our judgment, takes our place, and says, I will make things right. I will make you an enemy turned to a friend if you come to me in this grace. You believe in this, it will change everything. And so a high view of the law says, I realize that I will never achieve this. And therefore, it creates a high view of grace. It turns us into seekers of grace that realize nothing that I do will ever be good enough for God. The beautiful thing is, he's already done something to replace that in us. I like how uh, Tullian Trevigian that's really his last name. I didn't just mess that up. In his book, One Way Love, he's a, a pastor down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He said, the law illuminates sin, but it is powerless to eliminate it. See, that's the goal of law in our lives, is if you are feeling like, God, I can never achieve your standards, that is the proper feeling. Because what should happen is we say, God, I can never achieve your standards. Therefore, there must be a different option out there. And there is. In Christ, you don't have to achieve the standards. You have to live in him, abide in him. Let him transform you. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 explains it like this. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sin sinful nature was not yet cut away. The law, it's showing us that. It's proving to us we are dead. We don't have what it takes. Then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. That pressure you feel, that pressure to always achieve, that conditional pressure that you place on yourself and others, it doesn't have to be like that if you are in Christ, because grace accomplishes what the law demands. The law is able to show us that we are dead, but grace has made us alive in Christ. Tolian, that pastor in Fort Lauderdale, in his book, One Way Love, also talks about the voice of law and the voice of grace. And you have to know about him that he is actually one of the grandchildren of the late Billy Graham. And throughout his teenage years, just like a lot of us in this room, he went through a rebellious phase. But it lasted a lot longer than most of us in this room. And his parents, being the supportive and loving parents, tried to do everything for him through this, this phase of anger and bitterness and confusion. And so they moved him from school to school. They sent him away. They kept him home. They took him to counseling. And nothing worked. And so finally at 16 years old, they told Tolian, you have to move out. Our, ho our home is no longer available to you because of the way that you're living. And he said that from that point, 
He went to, to friends' houses and just hopped from house to house. He went from job to job because this anger and this bitterness and all of this confusion, he'd work at a job for a couple weeks and then they would fire him. He'd go to the next spot, work at a job, then they would fire him. And as he moved from place to place, he said that at one point, a little bit into this, uh, a friend of his father's reached out to him and said, Tulian, I'd like to take you out to lunch. He said, I didn't have any money. I was always looking for a free meal. And so he, he agrees to go out to lunch with this, this friend of his dad's. And while sitting there, this man starts to tell him everything that he's doing wrong. Everything. Tulian, do you understand that you are taking your parents' reputation and rubbing it all through the mud? Your grandparents, your family, everybody. You, you have destroyed everything that they have built up inside of their church community. You understand all the ways that you're hurting your parents. You understand what you've done to your siblings. And he just starts ringing them out. And you know what Tolian said? He said every single word that came out of his mouth was true. It was all justified. The voice of law is just. He knew that everything that he was putting his parents through was wrong. But he said, I got up from that conversation, didn't change a bit, and never talked to that man again. A year and a half later, another one of his dad's friends calls and says, hey, Tolian, do you, can I take you out to lunch? And again, he's so poor, he's always looking for a free meal, that he agrees to go out to lunch. He said, this man was the voice of grace. The first few minutes of the conversation went something like this. Tulian, I understand that you're confused. I understand that you're upset. I understand that you are hurting and broken and angry and bitter. And I just want you to know, you have my number. We can talk whenever you want to. Said the man then, just changed it to something completely different, started talking about sports. He said, that man is my friend today. And that two minutes of showing grace, irrational, illogical, I didn't earn it. I had earned the just voice of the law. But those two minutes of his voice of grace are what got me back on the path of coming back to God because that man was willing to show me something different than what I had deserved. And I think that if we all think about our lives, we see the role that law plays. Rules mean something. Discipline means something. But we have to understand as Christians that the law doesn't change a heart. It's not able to do that. It's only able to show you what the standard is and show you when you are outside of the standard. But grace is what comes in and transforms the heart. That's what moves us. When you think about the voices of law in your life and the voices of grace, sure, a voice of law may be able to make you do the right thing for a certain amount of time, but it does not inspire inside of you the desire to follow it for the right reasons. But when you think of those people that have treated you with grace, those are the people that you want their respect and their love, right? Those are the ones that they have freely given it and you now say, I wanna change, not based off of the fact that they told me what I'm not, 
but because of the grace and the goodness that they showed me even when I didn't deserve it. The, uh, as we close, the interesting thing about this topic is for us to talk about application would actually kind of be a little bit of an oxymoron in and of itself because application implies just trying harder and that's what we're saying that isn't really a great way to view our, our faith through grace. So I think implication is probably the right word. And uh, you can imagine that as you're, you're dealing with this topic, just like anything that you speak on from, from the stage, uh, it starts, things start implying themselves in your life very quickly. And uh, so I have a story to share with you. Um, back in January, my wife and I had the opportunity to join my parents in Orlando. And if you're in Orlando, where do you have to go when you're in Orlando? Disney. And so we get tickets to go to Disney. We got a hopper pass for the day and uh, went to Animal Kingdom and Hollywood Studios. And then we got to uh, the Magic Kingdom was where we're going to spend kind of the second half of the day and finish out with the parade and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and at that time, my dad had to leave and go to like something he had to do for work. And so it was me, my wife, and my mother. And uh, you can imagine, okay, for those of you that know me, that Disney doesn't really have the same effect on me that it has on my wife, okay? Um, while we're walking in and, you know, there's fairy dust flying in from all over the place, I don't even know. Uh, you know, they got music piping in, you're kind of, you're walking down that amazing strip of all the houses if you've ever been there, and they've got all these like old-fashioned two-story buildings that are there, and you know, they got the music playing and just everything, and so it's just this, you know, magical moment that is taking place right now. And uh, that picture is cute, and you may have this like awe moment by looking at it, but in a second you're gonna think I'm a monster. Um, so, you know, like, they got it all going on. Well, like, it doesn't affect me at all. I'm just like, yeah, this is great, okay, whatever. But my wife has snorted some pixie dust somewhere along the line, and I don't even know, I don't know what realm she's in, I don't know what world she's in, uh, you know, she's in a different dimension when she's at Disney, and, you know, she, her little fairy, you know, wings are coming out. She's, she is hovering off the ground. Okay, you can turn the music off. It's kind of making me sick, all this happiness. And so, so we're walking down this, this beautiful place leading to the castle that you see here. And uh, we get to kind of the end of this little entry into the Magic Kingdom. And... My wife, who does a lot of research, like anytime we go to Disney, which we've been a couple of times since we've been married, she does a lot of research and she reads a lot and she finds out what lines we should stand in and what time of the day we should do it at and where the best deals are for lunch and all of that. So she is just a wealth of knowledge by the time that we get to Disney. And it's, it's very nice because then I don't have to think. She's just like, go here, let's go this, let's do this, we'll eat here, all that kind of stuff, okay? As we get to the end of these two-story buildings, my wife makes this offhanded comment. She, she points to the two-story building, and she says, uh, she says, that is actually an optical illusion. That two-story building is smaller than you think it is so that the castle in the background looks bigger. 
She said, that building may look like it's a legit two-story building, but it's actually only eight feet tall. And my level of sarcasm matched the level of what I felt like was a ridiculous statement about an eight-foot-tall two-story building, okay? And I went, this is, I, I remember exactly, <laughs> this is exactly what I did. I went, that building's eight feet tall? And she went, this was the moment that she had to take it back, to, to look at the building, evaluate what she had just said, and take it back. And my wife and her stubbornness goes, yeah, Mike, it said it in the blog. It's an optical illusion, okay? So now it's on. Now it is on, okay? And uh, with my mother standing right there and with a bunch of tourists all around us, I am now arguing, you know, as hard as I know. My lawyer Mike has taken over, and I am borderline berating my wife. You're telling me, if I, I'm six foot tall, if I go stand at that building, I can touch the roof right now, and I'm just, I am being as annoying and as belittling, you know, as I know how to be. And at the end of it, this is why I'm a monster, you know, my wife, my wife is like walking away with tears in her eyes and she's like, you know, you have ruined the magic and magic kingdom, you know, like I'm a jerk. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I apologize in, in small ways, like I'm sorry. And we, my mom's like trying to break this whole thing up, right? She's watching this all go down, realizing we are in public right now at the happiest place on the planet, and you guys are getting into an argument. And so she's like, can you take a picture? So this picture is actually 30 seconds after that argument went down. Uh, we, we got it all together, okay? And, and she luckily, you know, the tears had stopped flowing. And uh, so, so we, you know, if you've been married for a while, um, you know that sometimes that moment is not going to be the best moment to try to handle an argument. Like, you know you have to talk about it again, but now is not it. So we put, like, our faces back on, had a good rest of the day, enjoyed the Magic Kingdom and all of its, its wonder and amazement. And I realized, like, this is a good time to not say anything debatable the, le- the rest of the time, Mike. Just say, yes, ma'am, you know, I'll do whatever, because I know it's kind of coming. And, uh, and so... The next day, I forget where we were going, but we were in a car for about an hour together, and we had what I guess you could call the debriefing moment uh, to talk about the previous day's uh, activities, okay? And so at that moment, you know, she's letting me know that what I did was uncalled for, and I didn't need to be that way, and, you know, and I am fully okay with accepting blame when I feel like I am the only one to blame, but in the moments when I feel like there is mutual blame there, then I don't mind pointing that out either, and so there were things said like, you know, well, why couldn't you just let me believe that that building was eight feet tall? That's what my friends would have done if we were there. And then we would have laughed about it later. And I think my words were, I can't live in a world where someone believes that's eight feet tall, okay? Like, so this is just, you know, I'm taking the blame, but I'm also like, I gave you the out. Like my initial, that's eight feet tall. That was your chance to pull back and go, definitely not eight feet tall. And her seeing my sarcasm and her stubbornness kicked in and she wanted to fight for that building to be eight foot tall. And so we kind of each had our mutual, like, this is what I did, and this is what I did. And uh, 
So I tell you all of this to say that as I'm, as I'm getting into grace the last few weeks, and as I'm reading and just thinking through this topic, uh, I am aware of the fact that out of the two of us, I'm the conditional one. I'm the one where achievement does precede acceptance. And especially we just celebrated our, our uh, 10th wedding anniversary this week. Uh, for about the first seven years, I would say, I, I can be great, but I can also be extremely harsh. And so I, I want to say it was either Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, I just apologized and I said, babe, I'm so sorry that, that I come at this from such a conditional, you know, achievement-based way. And I feel like the last few years have been a lot better, but I still notice that you like kind of flinch, like you're ready for my verbal, you know, beratement whenever something goes wrong. And, uh, and I feel like I haven't, I've been just letting things go, you know, like something happens. I just, I feel like I'm so much more easygoing and I don't hold you to standards and that, you know, that I had before these unrealistic standards. And when I said all of this, she was like, well, what about Disney? (laughs) Right. And, and so I was like, well, that's not really what I'm talking about. Because remember, Disney was both of us. Remember that? Like, you had the chance to get out of it, and you chose to defend the eight-foot building. And so remember, I can't live in a world where you believe this is eight feet, all this stuff. I'm more talking about, I've been much more graceful with, like, mistakes, you know, like, okay, you forgot something, or, you know, you dropped a dish and it broke, and I don't care anymore kind of thing. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not really talking about Disney. I'm an idiot, all right? So the next day, I am reading at a coffee shop, and I'm coming more in contact with the idea that everything about God's grace for us is so illogical. It's so irrational. And that God has called me to love my wife the same way that Christ has loved the church. And although my man-made mantra and my, you know, life verses that I have created myself that I put my name at the bottom because I'm so proud of how I see the world, all have to do with earning. And if you do something to me, you receive the same thing in return. When you make a mistake like that or, or you speak out of the realm of realness and are on pixie dust and everything, then, then you have earned whatever comes back to you depending on how ridiculous of a statement you've made. And I think about God's irrational, illogical grace with me all the time. That we have Disney moments every single day. And it doesn't change at all the fact that God still delights. He takes pleasure in showing us love. And so came home from the coffee shop, and I was like, hey, can, uh, can we talk again? 
like, you're right. You're right. That may have been, there's no way that building is eight foot tall. <laughs> but, but my reaction to that, when it comes to me being a follower of Christ, was completely wrong, regardless of if you have said that building was eight foot tall or if you told me that building was one foot tall, was completely out of line with what he calls me to do. And I don't know how I could have said it differently, I just know I could have done that situation differently to be in line with him. And I don't have a lot of application points today. Like I said, it's kind of an oxymoron. But I wonder what the implications are for you in your life. We know the law is useful. We know that as parents, rules have to be around and consequences have to be made. But how much more powerful is grace than law? How much more freeing is it to follow someone who has shown you grace rather than following someone who always just holds you to the standard? That's what Christ offers us. And if you are in Christ, then you don't have an excuse. You don't get to play this earning and achievement game with others. You don't get to hold things over their head and keep that pressure on them. You know why? Because those things have been taken off of your shoulders. How dare me or you put that on somebody else's? How powerful in a graceless world for those of us who have followed Christ to be grace in those moments of achievement and earning and success and failure and to be able to speak that same grace that was given to us to someone else. I would just ask you right now, just like me at the beginning, I said, you know what, I can tell a lot about my spiritual life with God based off of what I delight in and how much grace is present. How much grace is in your life right now? Do you delight in giving goodness to people that haven't earned it? Is that a reality? Not because you can do it, but because Christ is working in you. And in those moments when logic and ration and reason and everything says, this is who I need to be to this person to set them straight. Are you able to pull back and say, you know what, God, that was when I was in control. But that's not how it works anymore. Every day, you're in control of my life. Are you able to see that? Do you want to see that? And it's not about trying harder because then we just fall back into the same rut. It's about just praying and conceding and every day. For those of you in here that have given your life to Christ, the moment you gave your life to Christ, you said, I give control of my life over to you. I'm giving up on trying to prove it to you that I'm good enough, right? I'm, I'm letting your substitution take my place, Christ, to be declared right before you. But every day, every morning, multiple times throughout the day, I find myself praying over and over and over again, God, it's not about me being in control. It's not about me being better to my wife in those moments. It's about you working and inspiring and transforming that fruit in my life. 
That's what it's about. And so are you there right now? Do you want to be there? If you don't mind, I'd like to just pray to close it out. I just want us to think through what our community could look like if we were vessels of grace to our neighbors, to coaches in our communities, to friends in our communities, to teachers in our communities. What that, that vessel of grace, how apparent it would be in a broken, conditional world. So if you want mine, bow your heads. And I just, I honestly, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever given over control of your life? Or are you still going to bed every night hoping that your effort will somehow the next day fill a hole, find peace, and that if you can just prove yourself, then it will all get better. And even though the night before didn't work, the next day there's always hope. If you're there right now, I just want to say that there is a different life out there for you. In Christ, it doesn't have to be that way. The law has showed you you broke a relationship with him, and yet he has wanted to restore it through Christ, and he wants you to be a part of his family. And so if this is you, you don't have to say anything out loud. It's not about saying all the right words. It's just about expressing to God what's going on, this reality. And so if I were you, this is, what I, this is, this is something along what I would pray. Is Father... For so much of my life, I've tried to be in control. I've tried to hold myself to standards that I know I can't meet. I've held other people to those standards. And it's all about manipulation at the end of the day and just trying to get day to day through life. No grace, no love, no freedom. And yet, Father... Christ offers something different, and I want that. I genuinely want this relationship with him. I don't want to do it my way anymore. I want to do it yours. And through this new relationship, God, inspire in me goodness that you have shown. Inspire in me change that I wasn't able to accomplish just by me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your righteousness, for your grace, for your love. And if there's other people in here right now and you're saying, Mike, I, I prayed that, but I have completely taken back control in my life. I have like, I have spaced out, I have forgotten about God's undeserved goodness, and so my life looks just like someone else who has never believed in it. Let me just pray for you right now. God, the whole point of this is that we are undeserving, that we are flawed, that we are broken. And yet, God, even in that brokenness, you have given us something that is irrational and illogical, 
God, you've given us your goodness and your grace and your love and your forgiveness, your patience. And Father, will you please inspire and motivate and provoke in us this freedom to love you and to serve you and to be the same vessels of grace. That every moment we are tempted to grab those reins again and try to control our lives, that you would remind us to let them go and live completely in you. Father, may this community, based off of how it shows grace in moments when we are justified to show law, but instead, God, you inspire us to show grace. May we help bring others to this grace and build your kingdom, God, for your glory and your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.